And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining us today on the telephone is Dr. E. Calvin Beisner. And Cal, it's great to have you here again. Thank you very much. Always glad to be with you, my friend. (laughs) Recently you sent out an email and it really caught our attention here. And I I just want to read the first uh, opening paragraph of the email, Cal, and maybe you can get us started based on that. It says, U.N. leaders and President Obama hope to reach a binding global agreement to fight global warming at the upcoming U.N. climate summit in Paris in late November and early December. Uh, Such an agreement will bring great harm to the world's poor by depriving them of access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy, especially electricity, without which no society can rise out of poverty. It will also harm poor and low-income people in America and other developed countries by raising energy prices and reducing employment. So, Cal, maybe you can take it from there and and explain what is this uh, upcoming meeting, this climate summit in Paris all about, and uh, how will this have a kind of a negative ripple effect on thousands of people? Yeah, Dan, the uh, the upcoming meeting is <laughs> referred to as COP21, or Conference of the Parties, uh, 21st one, 21st year of this. Uh, the parties are nations that are parties to the United Nations Framework on uh, uh, Convention on Climate Change. And, and the goal at this conference will be to try to uh, achieve a binding uh, global agreement on how much carbon dioxide various nations can emit into the atmosphere. And the rationale for that is the fear that uh, rising levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, a rising concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, is causing dangerous global warming, uh, warming that uh, threatens ecosystems, threatens human well-being, uh, uh, even threatens, uh, some people would even go so far as to say threatens life itself on Earth. Uh, that is so far uh, out on the fringe that really even uh, the people involved in, for instance, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change would not tend to think that direction at all. Um, but the, the basic thrust of the thinking is that by our using fossil fuels, uh, coal, oil, and natural gas, whether to generate electricity, which is what we do mostly with coal and natural gas, or as transportation fuels, uh, primarily uh, petroleum, uh, oil, uh, somewhat also natural gas, by using these to, uh, to produce energy. We emit CO2 into the atmosphere, and that acts as what people call a greenhouse gas. Um, it absorbs infrared radiation, that is, heat, as it bounces from the surface of the Earth out towards space, and it radiates some of that back toward the surface of the Earth. Now, the basic science of it is pretty clear, and there are very, very few who question that. The real issue is how much warming comes from that. And uh, for a period of about 20 years or so, 25 years or so, 
Um, uh, a lot of scientists have thought that it's a pretty significant amount of warming um, uh, for a doubling of CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. They've, they've generally estimated that it'd be about three degrees Celsius increase in global average temperature. Um, but more recently, a lot of scientists have been rethinking that because of three very basic things. Uh, the computer models based on this thinking about CO2 in the atmosphere uh, on average, have simulated twice as much warming as actually has been observed over the relevant period. Uh, also, 95% of them have simulated more warming than observed, which means that the errors are not uh, random. They're clearly driven by some sort of, some sort of bias, and I don't mean by that some dishonest bias. It's, it's some mistakes that are... are uh, inherent to the computer programs themselves. And then uh, third, none of the models simulated the fact that for the last 18 years and now uh, eight months, there has been no statistically significant global warming at all. And over that period, there should have been quite a significant amount. Uh, what that means is that the models are wrong, that they clearly, uh, they clearly simulate far more warming than actually comes from added CO2. And as a result, uh, the, the warming that we can expect from our use of fossil fuels and whatever uh, knock-on effects come from that warming, uh, whether it be for sea level rise or for uh, polar, polar sea ice or land ice uh, shrinkage or for you know, changes in ecosystems, etc., any, any impacts of that warming are going to be much smaller because the warming itself is much smaller than was previously anticipated. So that in turn means that the rationale for policies to try to prevent or reduce that warming is significantly uh, undermined as well. Uh, since the models are wrong, they really give no rational basis for any predictions about future temperature, and therefore also no rational basis for any kind of policy. Yeah, so that's that's very concerning. Uh, if the models are wrong and the science is flawed, to enter into a binding global agreement based on errors is it, it seems very unwise. Yeah, it is, Dan. And the, the the real issue here is that it's not just kind of an academic exercise. It's not a thing with minor repercussions. It's a, it's a matter with major repercussions. Um, no society in history has ever risen out of abject poverty without access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy, especially in the form of electricity. And when I say abundant, I mean in massive quantities. When I say affordable, I mean it needs to be uh, down well under 10% of uh, typical household's average monthly expenses. Uh, and when I say reliable, I mean it needs to be there instantaneously when you want it, and it has to be extremely pure. There has to be no, no significant fluctuations in it. If you get a little bit of a surge or uh, a slight uh, reduction in power coming through your, your electric lines, you can fry all kinds of delicate electronic equipment, uh, not, not just computers, but even things like the compressor on your, your refrigerator and so on. So uh, what, what people need to rise out of intense poverty 
is this kind of abundant, affordable, reliable energy. And uh, right now, over 85% of all the energy used in the world comes from fossil fuels. Mm. And if we're going to reduce global warming, theoretically, by reducing our use of fossil fuels, then that means we are going to reduce people's access to this absolutely essential uh, condition of rising and staying out of poverty. And frankly, that means we're going to condemn uh, a couple of billion people around the world who still have no access to electricity whatsoever, mm. to ongoing generations of poverty and the high rates of disease, premature death, and other suffering that invariably come with poverty. Yeah, and we often, I'm guilty at least, of, of not thinking of um, countries where they don't have readily available energy sources like we do. We just get used to it. Um, prior to our discussion today, I just ran out to the post office. Well, I didn't physically r- run. I, I got into my car and I drove there and I drove back. It was very efficient. I didn't use a lot of gas and I, I, I got this thing done quick. Um, but we just take it for granted. And I think of um, the people in New York City. Uh, a lot of them are using natural gas. Yes. Um, you know, obviously we're using oil, which which makes into gasoline. And uh, one of the things I like, Cal, you get a kick out of this. Locally, there's one gas station now that is selling real gas. It doesn't have ethanol mixed in it. Yeah. And those those who really know tell me, hey, this is better for your car. Yes, it is. And if you need to store it in your lawnmower, it'll store better. You'll get better mileage, uh, you know, on and on. I think, why did we ever put this stuff in our gas to begin with, uh, wouldn't it be wiser to use it for food? <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a long story, and it has everything to do with the power of the agriculture lobby on Capitol Hill. Mm. But let's go back to, you know, your, your comment about the fact that you ran out, that is, you drove out to the post office, or people in New York use natural gas and so on. Think about this. For the for the average middle income American family, uh, the total cost of all of the energy that we consume directly—that is, your electric bill, your gas bill, your gasoline for your car—total cost of that tends to run a little under ten percent of your monthly income. Um, so, so figure about ten percent of your work time goes into obtaining that, right? Mm. Now let's compare that with the average sub-Saharan African woman. She has no electricity. She has no natural gas. She has no gasoline for the vehicle that she doesn't have, right? Uh, All of her energy she acquires by walking to wherever are the nearest forests and picking up wood. and, And along the way, she picks up dung, uh, dropped by animals on the ground. She carries those home. She dries the dung, uh, packing it onto the outside of her hut to dry in the sun. And then she uses those to, to cook and to heat the hut. The average sub-Saharan African woman spends six to eight hours every day getting just enough energy to cook her food and to heat her hut. Oh, wow. Now, can you imagine? I mean, if, if you had to spend six to eight hours a day on nothing but the energy necessary to cook your food and heat your home. Wow. You would have no time left significantly to earn all the other things that you take for granted in life. 
Yeah. Now, that's, that's what we're asking people in poor countries to stay with when we ask them not to come onto, uh, onto an electric grid powered by fossil fuels. Uh, and folks will say, oh, but let's, let's use wind and solar instead. Problem. Both wind and solar are much more expensive to generate electricity from those than from coal and natural gas, and they can't provide it in immediate, on-demand, massive quantities without fluctuation. They both fluctuate constantly. And so uh, what that means is it's going to be more expensive to get the energy in the first place. Uh, it's going to be more expensive to build the grids because you have to have wind and solar uh, panels and uh, you know, uh, turbines and panels spread all over the landscape instead of in very concentrated uh, individual generating units. Uh, and as a result, you are going to make it just simply unaffordable for these people to get the electricity in the first place. Mm. That, I think, is just simply morally unconscionable. And this is why the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation is, is really working hard to, to try to stave off that sort of a global agreement. We've just uh, launched, as, as you saw in that email that you mentioned, they've launched a series of YouTube videos um, called Greener on the Other Side uh, that really uh, explains all of these issues. We've interviewed 31 different uh, really outstanding scholars in the field uh, about what carbon dioxide does in the atmosphere to temperature, about what it also does, very beneficial to plant growth and therefore to food supplies, uh, about uh, energy policies, energy uh, production systems, and, and how they work and why they're so important to human thriving. Uh, so the YouTube channel is Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Uh, we've got four videos up so far. There are 31 more to come. Uh, they'll launch every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday into early December. So folks can go to YouTube.com and then look for Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation as our channel. Yes, um, there's so many um, related issues and emotions that, that come as I consider this, Cal. One of the things I'm thinking about, too, is uh, some people may be inclined to say, oh, no, I, I just want solar power. But, you know, they sometimes forget the fact that, yes, you know, there's these government programs and it helps you get the solar power a little bit cheaper. Of course, someone's paying for that. But it's not buffering the energy. What it's doing is it's backfeeding into the grid you know, as it were, reversing your meter, although typically it won't have that great of an effect. And so it, it'll reduce the cost on your electric bill during the time that the sun is out. But people forget here in the Northeast, you know, it, it's starting to get darker sooner in the evening now. Yeah. And during these, let's say you got a, a streak of rainy days, or, or let's say during the nighttime, you're getting zip from that solar power. Yes. And people forget about that. And so to have it readily accessible and available to you at the flip of a switch, you've had to buffer it in massive amounts of batteries. That's correct. And that makes it all the more expensive. But, Dan, let's assume for a minute <laughs> that, uh, that you never got cloudy days, that you had you know, steady 12 hours of sunshine, direct sunshine every day. Uh, the simple fact is that uh, the typical household's uh, solar array uh, actually wears out. It loses its, its uh, productive uh, capacity 
in, a, in less time than it takes to amortize its cost. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you were to take the same amount of money that you would pay for that array and invest it in the market at just a typical stock market return rate, uh, you would be building money over time. But your solar array never pays for itself. Uh, typically, uh, in terms of saved electricity costs, because it loses its effectiveness uh, before break-even point on what you paid for it. And you know, the solar companies never tell you that in advance, but that's the case. And then you have to add to that, that you need to do all kinds of maintenance. You have to be cleaning it all the time, and often, especially if it's a roof array, that's a, that's a, a dangerous thing. And then, of course, there are the disposal issues with the toxic materials that go into the making of solar panels. But, you know, for the, for, for the poor, solar just is not a significant solution. Folks will say, well, they can get, you know, these little solar panels that can provide them a bit of electricity. Yeah, that's true. But they don't just need a tiny bit of intermittent electricity from a solar panel that they can't afford anyway. Right. They need electricity to power a refrigerator to prevent food spoilage, uh, you know, to, to power an electric stove for smoke-free cooking so that we don't have about 4 million people dying every year from diseases caused by breathing smoke from using wood and dung as cooking fuels. They need uh, an electric water pump for constant water supply and uh, an electric heating and cooling. And that's not even to mention all the conveniences that you and I take for granted. And then, of course, there are the massive amounts of electricity needed for industry and commerce, uh, without which human productivity remains very low and therefore human incomes remain very low, i.e. people stay poor. So they need high-volume, steady, instant-on-demand, affordable electricity, and that comes only from being on a grid supplied by large-scale generating plants powered by fossil fuels or nuclear. Yes. Now, nuclear is great, but the technical demands of that are beyond most developing nations, uh, not to mention, of course, that there are security concerns as well. So wind, solar, and biofuels just cannot produce that scale of on-demand, unfluctuating power, except at far higher costs. Mm. This is why we have also launched a new petition called, For the Sake of the Poor, Don't Fight Global Warming. People can read that and sign on to it by going to cornwallalliance.org slash don't fight global warming. Yeah, you know, I I think I signed on the other night to that, and I, I really want to thank you for doing it. Because sometimes us small folks out there, we, we feel helpless, you know, like the leaders are pushing things through, and we have no say. But you know what? The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Right. And if we keep making our, our concerns known to our leaders, uh, if enough of us do that, then they start to listen a little bit. Yeah. By the way, I should mention there's no apostrophe in the don't of don't fight global warming. On our petition page, it's cornwallalliance.org slash don't fight global warming. No apostrophe. (laughs) Okay, good. You know, another frustration, too. I was thinking about this. Uh, Some of the guys that really want to fight so-called global warming, maybe they ought to consider not flying around in their great big jets. Oh, yeah. I was doing a little research, and it turns out, for example... Air Force One, which all of our presidents use, has four engines, and together they burn about one gallon of jet fuel per second. Yes. 
and the hourly fuel costs are are around eighty thousand dollars per hour. So you know, talk about burning a lot of fossil fuel. Air Force One burns a lot of fossil fuel, and to run that thing costs well, it costs a mint. It costs it costs more per hour than what I make per year. Well, and that's just Air Force One. Yeah. Every time the president flies somewhere aboard Air Force One, there is a whole squadron of fighter aircraft that accompany him everywhere he goes. Yes. There's an AWACS radar plane that stays nearby to make sure that nothing is coming at them. Uh, and everywhere he goes, there is an entourage of, of uh, vehicles for getting him from where it lands to wherever he's headed. And if he's headed overseas, we actually send naval ships wow. to the area as well. I mean, this is routine, and the, the carbon footprint of that is just immense. Yeah, I oh, no question about it. And uh, there was a couple of estimates online. Uh, on the lower side was Air Force One, all toll cost about $181,000 per hour to operate, and some estimates were even higher. Yeah, right. Well, uh, this is the issue. We have, uh, at this point, a president. We have leaders of the United Nations. We have even Pope Francis from the Vatican, uh, who are all just uh, urgently seeking a global agreement to reduce CO2 emissions to fight global warming. Uh, the best scientific evidence is that uh, CO2's warming effect, effect is actually quite small, not large. Therefore, there are not significant dangers to be anticipated from it. The models uh, that have been used to frighten people are clearly wrong and therefore give no rational basis for any predictions about temperature or for any any policies whatsoever. But we know that the policies are going to cost literally trillions of dollars. They will destroy hundreds of thousands of jobs in this country as well as in many, many other countries as well. They will slow the rise out of poverty or perhaps stop it completely for the poor around the world. And they'll even harm lots of people in developed countries. In, in Great Britain, for instance, uh, because of their policies to try to move from fossil fuels primarily to wind, uh, electricity rates have gone up so much that they've caused what the Britons have come to call fuel poverty. And in each of the last uh, about five or six winters, uh, thousands of people uh, have died over the winter because they couldn't afford both to heat their homes and to get the food that they needed. Mm. They chose to eat, and they died of cold because uh, the energy energy prices were just too high. Mm. Uh, that's going to happen. And, and the World Health Organization estimates that about thirty to forty percent of all of the what are called excess uh, premature winter deaths. About 34 to 40% of them uh, are caused by this fuel poverty caused specifically by those policies. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you apply the same policies in other countries, the same kinds of things will happen. Mm. Well, today we're talking with Dr. E. Calvin Beisner. And Cal, could you once again just explain a little bit more about the organization that you run and uh, how they can get a hold of you and, and read more about this? Yes, thank you. Well, the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation is a network of evangelical Christian uh, theologians and scientists and economists, um, those three primarily, about 60 scholars in the network. 
who are committed to uh, an educational ministry to promote three things simultaneously. The first is biblical earth stewardship, uh, what we also call godly dominion, men and women created in God's image, working together to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our, our neighbors, so that really we're addressing the two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. Uh, second, to promote economic development for especially the very poor around the world. Think in terms of places like sub-Saharan Africa, Haiti, some parts of Latin America and Asia, uh, through a combination of, of limited government, the rule of law, uh, human rights, uh, private property rights, uh, free markets, free trade, and so on. Uh, and access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy. And the third is the proclamation and defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that reconciliation with God, with a holy God, uh, is possible for us sinners by grace, uh, by God's grace, a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ, who on the cross or our sins, or the, the penalty and the, uh, the guilt for our sins, so that as we place our faith in Him, His righteousness is credited to us, and God can then embrace us despite the fact that we are sinners. Mm, amen. Beautiful. Um, Cal, thank you so much, and um, dear listener, this um, this whole effort is worthy of your support. The Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And is a great group, and Dr. Cal Beisner is our guest today. And, and Cal, one more time, would you please share with us your web address? Sure, that's cornwallalliance.org, cornwallalliance.org. Okay, got it. And we'll also include that uh, up on our website. We'll post this entire episode as a podcast. Please check it out. We're found at redeemerbroadcasting.org. Cal, thanks for joining us today. Dan, thank you very much. Look forward to the next time. 